Hello, Discus listeners. Rachel Tappen here. We have big news in the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group and the Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science podcast. Please welcome Dr. Kristen Cizat and Dr. Uzair Hamad, who will be taking over as Discus hosts. I have had so much fun working on Discus these last few years. I'm grateful for the generosity of all the smart folks doing meaningful work in spinal cord injury rehab who have joined me for interviews. I'm grateful to all of you for listening. And I'm grateful to the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group and the Academy of Neurologic PT for giving this podcast a platform. I am also excited for the future of this podcast. Kristen and Uzair, or Z, have some interesting and important topics and speakers lined up for you. And so, without further ado, I will hand the mic over to them. Thank you all so much for joining us today. My name is Kristen Cizat, and this is my co-host, Uzair Hamad. And we are going to be bringing some really awesome discussion today for you guys. We cannot thank Rachel enough for passing the torch on to us and all the amazing work that she's done with this podcast over the last few years. Now, for today's episode, we are excited to be speaking with Dr. Enrico Rach and Dr. Andrew Smith. They, along with their team, have recently published a paper in the Experimental Brain Research Journal. The paper is titled Spinal Cord Imaging Markers and Recovery of Standing with Epidural Stimulation in Individuals with Clinically Motor Complete Spinal Cord Injury. So I'm going to introduce our speakers today. Dr. Enrico Rach is a faculty member at the University of Louisville Department of Neurosurgery. Enrico is a scientific director of metabolic, neuromuscular, and skeletal research core of the Kentucky Spinal Cord Injury Research Center and has been involved in spinal cord injury and epidural stimulation research since 2010. Dr. Andrew Smith is a physical therapist and rehabilitation scientist who has worked in spinal cord injury research and clinically since 2010. As a faculty member at the University of Colorado Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Andrew is the director of the Spinal Cord Injury Imaging Research Laboratory. We're really excited to talk with both of you guys. So welcome, Andrew and Rico, to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Kristen and Z. Happy to be here. All right. So we're going to get started with um, Enrico. Before we dig really deep into the study, we'd like a little bit of background for all of the listeners on the general overview of the epidural stimulation and spinal cord injury work that's been done and the research that's, that's behind this intervention. Yeah, sure. And, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting to mention a couple of, you know, milestones that actually led to, to the current uh, work and current clinical trials that are implementing epidural stimulation of the spinal cord in, in the recovery of motor and also autonomic function in individuals with uh, severe spinal cord injury. And, you know, focusing particularly on motor recovery is worth mentioning some work in the 1990s and in 2000s where epidural stimulation has been applied in animal models with anatomically complete spinal cord injury for the recovery of um, stepping and, and standing. And the rationale there, and this is again important then as to how this was translated in, in humans. So the rationale was that epidural stimulation was applied in order to mimic the non-specific tonic drive that is lost after spinal cord injury, so that it would basically power on again spinal circuitry controlling posture and locomotion that is below the level of injury. 
so that it would re-enable it to use peripheral sensory information, for example, coming from the tendon, uh, skin, and muscle. So to use this information as a source of control to generate, you know, independently from the brain, effective motor patterns for standing and stepping. And so again, the idea is that this independent subunit formed by spinal circuitry and peripheral sensory information would work independently from supraspinal contribution and actually result in, in effective motor output. And so these studies in, in animal models and this, this rationale actually led our group in Louisville to implant our first individual with motor complete spinal cord injury at the end of 2009. However, you know, what we found really serendipitously was that this individual who had, again, a motor complete SCI diagnosed both neurologically and clinically actually recovered some volitional control of leg movements, but only when the stimulation was on. And again, this was really surprising, unexpected. And then, you know, these findings have been replicated in several other research participants with complete paralysis, both, you know, in our lab and in other research centers. And again, we and, and other groups uh, in the last decade have also shown that the combination of epidural stimulation and activity-based training can promote the recovery of walking and standing in, in this population. And, you know, more recently, uh, we also shown that uh, epidural stimulation can also modulate the autonomic function, for example, cardiovascular, bladder, and bowel function. And, and again, there are ongoing clinical trials, and this is where the field is right now. That's so interesting, and it's really exciting work. We've been following this in the clinical application, and it brings a lot of hope to our clients with motor complete spinal cord injury to be able to have conversations like this that we've never had before. So yeah. awesome work. Enrico, quick follow-up. Would you mind describing what questions you guys were looking to answer with your study? Yeah, so that's interesting. And, you know, going back to, to the concept of uh, motor recovery, you know, the fact that epidural stimulation actually can re-enable volitional motor control of the, of the paralyzed lower limbs actually, you know, shifted the, the original paradigm as to how we, again, initially expected to implement epidural stimulation for motor recovery. Because now, you know, it is clear that supraspinal inputs can actually play an important role for recovery of standing and walking in, in humans. But again, this is not how the, 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 the rationale in the field, you know, has started. And so we don't really have robust mechanistic background yet to understand how this interaction works and specifically, you know, how and which limited supraspinal inputs crossing the clinically complete lesion, which is, you know, very often anatomically incomplete, mm -hmm. can actually be integrated by the subunit I mentioned earlier, that is comprised of the spinal circuitry controlling posture and locomotion and the peripheral sensory information. And, and then, you know, again, combined together, contributing to 
the recovery of walking and standing. And that's why, again, we, we basically developed this study to, to learn more about this critical contribution of residual supraspinal input. Man, thank you for that explanation, Enrico. This seems so huge, especially for, like you said, these are patients with complete spinal cord injury. So Andrew, before we dig a little bit deeper into the methods of this paper, um, I, I want to I have you review for us a little bit of the background of how imaging and MRIs are being clinically used in, in standard clinical practice today um, as far as determining the severity of a spinal cord lesion. Well, sure. And Kristen, and as a fellow clinician, as you know, um, radiologists, physiatrists, therapists, uh, in the clinic, we're all busy. And so we don't take a whole lot of time to make quantitative measures on, on uh, patients' MRIs. So kind of routine in, in most centers, you know, the, the healthcare team is looking for the post-surgical alignment within the uh, vertebral bodies to make sure everything is, uh, is, is aligned appropriately. And then um, might look at uh, other factors qualitatively, such as is there a hemorrhage present in the cord? Um, is there a presence of um, edema? And, and how, how large is that edema? How, how lengthy is it as far as spanning um, anatomically? And then you might look at different signal changes within the cord itself, possibly looking at you know, the extent of the uh, hyperintense signal or edema from a cranial to caudal um, boundaries. But again, it's more of a subjective, qualitative uh, look at things when using MRI and routine clinical practice. Yes, I, I agree. That's, that's exactly how I, I use the imaging today in my practice. Um, so to follow that up, can you describe to us the process of analysis of the MRIs used in your group study to determine the amount and the type of spared um, circuitry in the spinal cord lesion, in the spinal cord tissue? Yeah, sure. So first, before we dive in too deep, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, our collaborator who was also um, a co-author on this study, uh, Dr. Ken Weber at a Stanford University. So when I was um, kind of more on the later stages of my PhD training, I uh, worked with Ken and we developed um, some methods of assessing estimates of damage to specific regions within the spinal cord as well as estimates of damage to specific tracts. And uh, this has really kind of coincided with the uh, development and in, in rollout of this software called the Spinal Cord Toolbox uh, with Julian Cohen-Adad and, and his group of collaborators. And by using this software, it's a template-based approach where you can kind of take a look at uh, axial images through the spinal cord and images through uh, where damage might be occurring in each particular axial slice. And then you can kind of get an idea of where um, the hyperintense signal might be and have some estimates of, of what type of lesions are, um, sorry, what type of regions might have been damaged. And so if you kind of can remember our spinal cord anatomy as far as in the cross section, we have our dorsal column in the posterior side, right, bringing all the sensory information. Um, and as Enrico explained earlier, that sensory information could be coming from uh, tendon, muscle, um, skin, right? And then we also have kind of the lateral regions, which are more where our lateral corticospinal tracts are running. 
And um, in, in particular, the anterior regions of the cord would be more where some postural, right, and um, uh, proximal activation might be occurring for the descending motor system. And so by using uh, our methods, we can kind of get some estimates of, of where and what might have been uh, damaged after spinal cord injury. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I would say in my in clinical practice, as I talk to colleagues, you know, we tend to do we do the Asia and then piece together what that looks like with the imaging following. So it's so neat to have a, a tool like what your group has used to do the opposite and actually be able to determine some things before going in and doing your neurologic exam. And, and that's the hope that with, you know, further refinement and uh, with high resolution imaging, we can kind of use these tools possibly for aiding prediction and prognosis, but also for informing us of uh, specific interventions like the group uh, in Louisville uses, such as epidural stimulation. Now, Andrew, I know you just mentioned a little bit about the anatomy of the spinal cord. Can you please describe the process of, or the methods you guys use to analyze the MRIs used in your group study? to determine the amount and type of spared spinal cord tissue? Sure, yeah, especially with these initial studies, you know, we're really looking to see, um, does it make anatomical sense, right? So if the right-sided cord has been mainly damaged, um, does that lead to less activation of, of the right lower extremity with epidural stimulation on? Um, same thing with the left side and, and the left lower extremity. We also kind of wanted to get some ideas of gross measures, total cord, right? Um, how much of the total cord are we estimating has been damaged compared to anything spared? Um, and does that relate to gross measures of bilateral activation of standing? And we uh, also have, um, uh, based on our previous paper, we wanted to take a look at as well that anterior location with the proximal and postural um, musculature being activated with those descending tracts, and does that play a role in uh, independent standing with epidural stimulation on? That's so neat. I, I'm I'm really excited to hear. So Enrico, I want you to can you summarize and go into some of the details of what the actual findings when you combine the imaging with the the placement and and the selection of the patients that you guys are using. Yeah, sure. So, and, and I just want to clarify that again, these results were, were actually assessed um, after, you know, epidural stimulation implantation, but before any training. Mm -hmm. So basically, we did first uh, get the MRI of the spinal cord, then the participants underwent stimulation implant, and then we, we assessed the uh, with stimulation parameters might be more appropriate for, st for standing. And then we actually perform the, you know, the motor um, function test. And so, you know, with this in mind, what we found in this study was that, again, we, we did find the significant relationship between the spare tissue in the right spinal cord region and the ability to generate independent lower limb extension during standing overground. That was really interesting. And we also saw, again, a similar trend on, on the left side, you know, relating the left spared spinal cord and the left uh, independent extension. And, and finally, we also found um, a significant relationship between 
the total spare core tissue and the ability to generate bilateral independent lower limb extension during standing. Were these, were these findings surprising for your, your group? I would say that they, they were surprising and important and, you know, and somehow surprising because again, prior to, um, you know, meeting Andrew and, and starting this, um, this series of studies, we were really focused on, you know, on the stimulation parameters as we, you know, as we found that they really played a key role in determining uh, standing motor recovery. So, you know, we found that these parameters are individual and task specific. And again, we need to really fine tune them in order to promote the best standing. But, you know, now with these uh, results, we have really added another important piece of the puzzle showing that the lesion characteristics are also associated with standing motor recovery in, you know, using epidural stimulation in this population of motor complete uh, SCI. That's, that's fascinating. So how do you see these findings contributing to the epidural stimulation client selection and maybe the implementation of this in the future with future studies? Yeah, so I think, you know, so, you know, on one hand, we, we need to, to keep in mind that this study was on 11 participants. And so, you know, we need to expand the, the sample size and hopefully, you know, we have uh, in mind the, the idea of, again, increasing the number of participants and also using higher resolution MRI in, in a, you know, uh, control prospective study for the future. And I would say that this study, you know, brings up two important contributions for the future. One is to really, um, you know, trying to better understand, again, the contribution of the supraspinal inputs and hopefully of specific spinal tracts rather than region on motor recovery in this population, you know, implanted with epidural stimulation. And on the other hand, you know, hopefully, or maybe contributing to uh, um, selecting the, the, the population that might benefit the most from, the, from this implant. Well, we want to thank both of you guys so much for this interesting work that you guys have done. It, it's bringing so much promise and excitement. It's, it's an exciting time to be working in the field of spinal cord injury already, but studies like this are conversation that we can have with our clients in clinical practice of, of future opportunities for those who in the past really didn't, didn't have any opportunities of vision of walking or return or things like that. So even in these early phases, it's such a um, amazing thing that we can bring to clinical practice of allowing our clients to go forward, reading the literature and staying up to date with the future things that, that your groups will be producing. So Dr. Rach and Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so wonderful to have the opportunity to highlight your work in both spinal cord imaging and epidural stimulation. Is there anything you would like to say to our listeners before we uh, disconnect? Well, no, just Kristen, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Kristen Z, thank you for having us. And uh, for all those folks listening out there, we appreciate the, uh, the time. We look forward to seeing your future work and hopefully another podcast episode as your next studies come out. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yes, Andrew, Enrico, thank you both so much for joining us today and for this hard and crucial work that you guys are doing to really help our patient population for those that have been affected with a spinal cord injury. And thank you so much for our Discus listeners for joining us today. Stay tuned for the exciting stuff we have coming out for you guys.